So this is the first study group or class we're going to have. Uh, we're having on the Prajna Paramita that's called Varja Chedika, the Diamond Cutting Sutra, or the diamond that cuts through delusion, as Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, titled it. So what I want to do today, I did ask you to read a bunch of chapters, but what I want, you, what I want to do today is... Uh, begin with uh, some background on how this came about. So we kind of get on the same page about uh, the development of Buddhism, uh, not too long, but just to go over some basic aspects of the development and uh, what in a way gave birth or gave rise to this text or other texts that are related to that. Also, uh, just before we begin, it's interesting to note that uh, this, there is an ancient scroll, a real ancient scroll of the Diamond Sutra exists today housed in the British Library, actually, uh, which is considered the most ancient text that we know of. So I'll get to how it got there uh, at the end of the introduction, just as a side note. So much of what is known uh, well, to, not to us about uh, the beginning stages of Buddhist development is actually based on oral transmission, which originated from many discourses and teachings of the Buddha. Buddha had a cousin named Ananda, who was born on the day the Buddha's, of the Buddha's enlightenment. And later on, he became his close disciple and attendant. Nanda started following the Buddha at an early age, spent the rest of his life by his side, taking care of all his needs and witnessing all his discourses. And he was also known to have a phenomenal memory. He was able to memorize the talks and teachings of the Buddha. And obviously in the absence of notepads and recording devices, that was a very highly valued talent at the time. So, about three months after the Buddha's death, 500 of the main disciples of the Buddha got together for what is known as the first Buddhist council. And they got together to contemplate how to preserve the teachings and how to move forward with their practice after losing their teacher. So Mahakashyapa was installed as the president of the council and Ananda was given a special seat by his side, as he was able to recite the teachings, the original teachings, and share it with everybody. And it is said that the assembly accepted this recitation as the accurate teachings of the Buddha. And they became known as the Sutta Pitaka. Pitaka is a basket. The Buddha's teaching. So Pitaka, the, this actually was the beginning, <coughs> excuse me, of what is known as the Tripitaka, the three baskets. And they use baskets because they say that the teachings were able to, they were able to put all the teachings in one basket. So the three baskets, each one representing different aspect of uh, the teachings. So the Sutta Pitaka, or the Sutra Pitaka. And then uh, the other basket is what is called Vinaya Pitaka, the rules of conduct for practitioners. 
And that was the beginning of the oral transmission of what we know today as Buddhism. The second council happened about a hundred years later, took place at Vaishali, which you may remember as the hometown of Vimalakirti. They got together to discuss some disagreements, as often happens with growing movements, and they were trying to figure out ways to codify and systematize the teachings. More practitioners, more disagreements, more opinions, more trouble. So that, was, that gave rise to this meeting. And this meeting actually was the beginning of divisions. Different sects of Buddhism actually developed from that point on. Uh, but for us, mainly uh, the division between Theravada school and the Mahayana school. So about 250 years later, they got together for what is known as the Third Buddhist Council. That took place somewhere between the 3rd and 4th century BCE, under King Ashoka. There are some scholarly disagreements, although, about the dates and about exactly what happened in that meeting. But we can leave that aside for now. At this Third Council, the Abhidharma Pitaka was introduced, which is the third basket creating together what is known as the three baskets of Buddhism, the Tripitaka. And that completed that. So the Vinaya Pitaka, the Sutta Pitaka, and the Abhidharma Pitaka, which is the third one. Abhidharma means the higher teachings of the Buddha. The Abhidharma is a very intricate, highly philosophical and psychological analysis and interpretations of Buddhist doctrine. And I want to read a short description about the Abhidharma. The Abhidharma is essentially an attempt to systematize the Buddha's teaching about the dynamics of moment-to-moment -moment experience as it unfolds in the stream of consciousness. In summary, the Abhidharma describes how 28 physical phenomena co-arise with 52 mental factors, manifesting as 89 type of consciousnesses, which unfold in a series of 17 mind moments, governed by 24 types of casual relations. One of its methods is to take a single thought moment of experience, accessible by means of meditation, and then to identify the characteristics of that moment of consciousness. This, as you can see, this scholastic, intellectual, and dry theory of the Abhidharma became the catalyst for the transformation in the way Buddhism was practiced during the first century BCE. And what happened, it's very difficult to practice this, right? So what happened at the time, some people got together, realized this is, there is that, and then there is our everyday life. How do we live this? How do we actualize all this, right? So they decided, they, a bunch of practitioners, decided to look back at the Buddhist teachings, at the original Buddhist teachings, and see if, if it's possible that it became too heavy, too big, too thick to actually practice, to actually live, okay? So, and this was the beginning of what is known today as the Mahayana. 
So now Mahayana, as you know, we talked about it, is considered the, the great vehicle or path. And the Hinayana back then was considered the small vehicle or the, the lesser path. And I just want to note uh, a quote from Huineng who says, this teaching is neither true nor false. This path is neither great nor small. So just to bring that in relation to big and small, great or not so great, right? That was not or is not the point in this. The, the, the Mahayana, the Hinayana was focused on personal realization. And then the, the Mahayana, uh, in a way, expanded it to realization can only happen when everybody is included. So there is no such thing as personal individual realization, or maybe there is, but to actualize it, everybody must be included. Does that make sense? This is just my words of trying to explain that. There are many other ways of, and I encourage you to read actually about uh, the development of Buddhism and get more into it. There are also many <clears throat> disagreements about how it developed. Uh, Edward Conzi, Dr. Edward Conzi, one of the first Western scholars who devoted himself to translating Buddhist teachings, wrote, what seems to be doctrinal innovation may, re may, rely, may really be nothing but the gradual shifting of the line between esoteric and exoteric teachings. Which is actually a very nice way of putting it, right? So what he's saying is that it's a gradual and natural shift between esoteric and exoteric. What's the difference? Tell us. <laughs> Esoteric is going out and esoteric is going in. So an esoteric would be a small group of people who have a particular understanding of vocabulary. And, um, an exoteric would be a, a more general presentation for a popular audience. Um, so that would be two. Uh, you know, those in the know would be the esoteric. Um, and the exoteric would be so much more Exoteric referring to external. Yes. So, yeah. Right. So, and this is actually a very good way to, to summarize, right, the, in a way, moving from uh, Hinayana to Mahayana, right? Moving from focusing on this one here to focusing on this one here for the sake of all creation. Right? So my realization is your realization. In fact, that's what the Buddha said. I and all beings together have attained realization. Together. Because one is all. Right? So, yeah. And then, actually, later on, the Mahayana did develop their own, uh, int or, I guess you could say heavy or uh, complicated, somewhat, uh, teachings of the... So, from Abhidharma, became Yogacara... Majyamaka and Avatamsaka Sutras later on. So that's, in a way, the, their version of looking at that and systematizing it. So this actually was, that's what three different schools that developed from that later on. 
So, uh, let's just keep reading from there. The several texts of the Prajnapalamita Sutras vary from very long to very short and often named according to the number of lines uh, it takes to write them. Now, the Prajnapalamita Sutras were the first that came out from, from this uh, development, right? And it's not that they wrote them there. They do actually believe that it came from the Buddha's teachings. It's just that they took that part of the Buddha's teachings and focused on that as something that can be actualized, not just talked about or philosophized. Okay, so that's the Prajnaparamita Sutras. And they divided them by how many lines it takes to write them, basically. So one is the perfection of wisdom in 25,000 lines, another the perfection of wisdom in 20,000 lines, and then 8,000 lines and so on. The Diamond Sutra is the perfection of wisdom in 300 lines. And that's what brought it to, to life in a way. That happening, basically, going from the Abhidharma to looking for another way to a more uh, direct, probably best, direct way to understand and actualize the teachings of the Buddha. Does that make sense? Okay. So, the perfection of wisdom in 300 lines, the Trisatika, Trisatika, which is the Prajnapalamita. It is often taught within Buddhism that the shorter Prajnapalamita sutras are distillation of the longer ones, and that the brief and highly distilled diamond and heart sutras were written last. But many scholars suspect that the shorter sutras are the older ones, actually, and the longer sutras are elaborations. So you choose. <laughs> what we chant today uh, as the Heart Sutra, obviously, is a very short version of the longer sutra. Whether it, this came before or after is secondary. So Prajna Paramita. We chant a lot, right? Prajna Paramita. This is also, the Diamond Sutra is also a Prajna Paramita. What is Prajna? Do you know? If not, I will say, but... <laughs> wisdom. Yeah, wisdom, right? Wisdom. Uh, so Prajna is wisdom, and Paramita is perfection, right? As in the six Paramitas, which we're going to get into. So Prajna is pra before, right? It's actually... It's not just wisdom, it's the before wisdom, or it's the wisdom at birth, if you will. Inception. It's the wisdom, it's the inherent wisdom. It's not accumulated wisdom. It's what is there before the mind moves, before any thought arises. That's the wisdom this is talking about. Okay, so Prajna, before. And let me just go back to this. So it's inherent wisdom, or knowing it by birth. You remember that? Knowing it by birth is best. Knowing it by study is next. This is one of the, uh, it's from one of the koans, one of the commentaries to the koan. Knowing it by birth is best. Okay. And what is Paramita? Perfection. Can you say more? Okay. 
So perfection, highest, excellence, those are the translation or the words that are used to translate uh, Palamita. But there's also another way of uh, translating it is Pala, as in going beyond. And Ita, which means that which goes. And together, Palamita means in that way, that which goes beyond to the other shore. That which crosses over to the other shore. And in a way, practicing, uh, upholding, working with those perfections is a way to go to the other shore. Okay? As gate, gate, palagate, palasamgate. You know, we chant that, right? Gone, gone. Gone beyond to the other shore. So, I want to move on from this to the six paramitas because it's very important uh, for our practice. Also, it's very important for the Diamond Sutra. The first one is, do you know the first one? Do you remember? Danna Paramita, which means what? Generosity. generosity, perfection of generosity, the perfection of giving, the first one. The first one, very important for the Diamond Sutra. Actually, very important to Buddhist practice and teachings. The first one. Because it brings it all together. We'll talk about that. So, Dana Palamita, first one. Second is Siddha Palamita. Which is what? Morality. Yeah. The perfection of morality through upholding the precepts. Ksanti Palamita. Forbearance, patience. Vidya Paramita. Means what? Vigor, yeah, vigor, courage, energy. The perfection of energy. Get up. Fall down, get up. Again and again and again and again and again and again, endlessly. Find the energy to keep at it. Janna Paramita. What is Janna? There's one way. It is study, but it's a very specific kind of study. Janna became Channa in, in China, then it became Chan, then it became Zen in Japan. Meditation. The perfection of meditation. So it is a way of study. But perfection of meditation. So jhana is meditation. Jhana is Zen. So the perfection of meditation. And Prajna Paramita? Perfection of wisdom. Okay. Good. So we can move on. It says that scholars believe the original text of the Diamond Sutra was written in India sometime in the second century. Uh, Kumarajiva is believed to have made the first translation into Chinese in the year uh, 400, around the year 400. And the Kumarajiva text seems to be the one most often translated into English. Later on, the text of the Diamond Sutra was translated into Chinese many times, actually, 
One of the translators was Prince Chao, the son of Emperor Wu. You guys remember Emperor Wu? From? I need a break, so go ahead, say something about Emperor Wu. Yes. Yes. So when Bodhidharma came to China, there is, uh, there is a story, let's put it this way, about uh, him meeting Emperor Wu, right? And uh, Emperor Wu asked him, you know, what, is he, what kind of merits has he received from, uh, you know, putting out so much money and supporting and building Buddhist monasteries and temples, right? And uh, he said, none whatsoever. You got nothing out of it. Right? So while he was busy doing that, meaning emptying out his, uh, uh, the money of his, uh, whatever he had, um, or the country had, to build monasteries, his son was busy translating the Diamond Sutra. His son actually was a devout practitioner. So he translated and he divided them to 32 chapters. Do you know why? It is in the book. <laughs> why 32 chapters? So the Buddha was known by 32 characteristics, very specific characteristics. Different ones. You can read about them. One of them was a curl between his eyebrows, flat feet, and other stuff. Earlobes and other things, right. So, yeah, you can look it up. It is in the book. Anyway, so um, he divided it to, to 32 chapters to create the 32 marks of the Buddha. Um, and this chapter division actually has been preserved to this day, although translators do not always use Prince Chao's Ming title. So during the 9th century, Chinese Buddhist by the name Wang Jie commissioned a block printer to create a 17 and a half foot long scroll of the sacred, this sacred Buddhist text, including an inscription on the lower right hand side that reads, reverently made for universal free distribution by Wang Ji on behalf of his two parents. Okay. Around the, the year, around the 10th century, when the era was threatened by bandits traveling along the Silk Route, this Diamond Sutra silk scroll, along with 40,000 other sacred scrolls and documents, were sealed in a secret cave near the ancient town of Danhuang at the edge of the Gobi Desert. In, in 1907, a British-Hungarian archaeologist by the name of Mark Stein was on expedition mapping the ancient silk route, or silk Road, when he heard about this secret library. It said that he bribed the abbot of the, of the monastery or monastic groups that were in charge of keeping this safe. And he took it and smuggled it along with other uh, secret documents out of the country, including the Diamond Sutra. The International Danhuang Project is now digitizing those documents and 10,000 other found on the Eastern Silk Route. Mark, Mark, Mark Stein was knighted for his work, although in China they consider him a thief. Mm. Well, because. <laughs> <laughs> because he did steal it. 
So that's how it ended up in the British Library. So if you want to go see it, you can. So, just a few words about this was just a few words about how it developed. Now, chapter one, the cause and reasons for this Dharma assembly. Thus I've heard, once the Bhagavan was dwelling near Shravasti at Anatta Pindata Garden in Jetta Forest, together with the full assembly of 1250 bhikshus, disciples, and a great many fearless bodhisattvas. One day before noon, the Bhagavan, Bhagavan, and there are different uh, epithets for the Buddha that are used in this sutra. The Bhagavan put on his patch robe and picked up his bowl and entered the capital of Shravasti for offering. After begging for food in the city and eating his meal of rice, he returned from his daily round in the afternoon, put his robe and bowl away, washed his feet, and sat down on the appointed seat. After crossing his legs and adjusting his body, he turned his awareness to what was before him. A number of bhikshus then came up to where the Bhagavan was sitting. After touching their head to his feet, they walked around him to the right three times and sat down to one side. So Bill Porter, Red Pine, says that the remaining 32 one chapters in this sutra attempt to explain what happened in this one, in the first chapter. Essentially, they examine the nature of Buddhahood and the path that leads to it. In the first chapter, we see what the Buddha does, which is not so different from our own daily round of existence. If we could only do what we do unhindered by attachments and see what we do, what see what we do unobstructed by delusions, right? Then there is a connection between what we read and what we do. What this sutra teaches us is how to transform attachments and delusions, how to be a Buddha. And it begins with a patch robe, an empty bowl, and the Buddha's daily practice of his teaching. So you read it. I'm going to talk about it uh, further. But you read it. What do you see in it? Just that first chapter. What's happening? This sets the scene, right? Like many sutras, the beginning sets the scene for the sutra. What's happening there? That's what was happening at the time, right. That was their daily life. You know, it reminds me actually, when I went to Thailand, one of the first times I went to Thailand, many years ago, uh, so we, before we, I went to the monastery, we met a monk in the city, in Bangkok. And, uh, you know, and he actually spoke English, so we sat down, I spoke to him a little bit, and I asked him to describe what they do, and he said, we wake up in the morning, you know, we wash up, and we go bowling. He learned English from a dictionary, so it made sense to say we go bowling, right? Because they go with a ball and they beg for food. So they went bowling every morning. <laughs> and it's just a funny anecdote. But uh, yeah, that is 
it's actually still happening now in many countries, Buddhist countries, or countries that practice Buddhism that way, especially in Thailand. They do, uh, they li- when they live in a monastery, they go and they, or sometimes food is brought to them, uh, and then they stand in a line and people come one at a time and put food in their bowl. And when you put food in the bowl, you're not supposed to touch the bowl. You, you put f- the food directly inside the middle of the bowl, actually, to keep it pure. And um, it, it's a very strange thing for us, I think, the whole uh, notion of begging for food, right? So the couple of things I want to read about that, a um, couple of uh, quotes from the commentaries. Okay, so you said daily activities, right? What else? More in relation to us as practitioners. We go do what we do, right? We get home, or we come here, we sit down, we fold our legs together, and we turn our attention to what was before us. Isn't that what we do? (laughs) Or maybe we turn our attention to what happened throughout the day. (laughs) Right. So here is the instruction. Turn your attention to what was before you. Okay. So what was before you? Prajna, before, the, the, the wisdom of before, not accumulated wisdom. Do you want to close that? Not accumulated wisdom, inherent wisdom. We get entangled by, by what happens from the moment we are born up to now, right? We don't get entangled by inherent. We get entangled by accumulated, by accumulated details of story, which we have to deal with. But what happens when we turn the attention to what was before the story began accumulating? It's just a very important line. So the before is about time? It's not about space? That's interesting. I was thinking that before was kind of paying attention to what was, I guess that's my part of English, you know, my background of not English speaking, but before I was interpreting that as something that it's like, whatever is going on now, so it's, you know, it's kind of in front of me or something like that, that's... I think that might be the translation on the sense of trying to say what's the difference between setting your attention to what is before you and also in the Okay, let's put it this way. Can you see now what was before now? No. Not in terms of details. Can you see now? Because what was before now doesn't go or come. So we say to be in the moment, this is where being in the moment is actually a very superficial way of understanding practice. It is used, but it's not deep. 
Because a lot's happening right now. Yes, I can pay attention to this and this and this. But it's an entry point to what was before. Or to get in touch with what was before. Yeah, but before he's done, I mean, he's done yesterday, it's before the times. Yeah. Yes. It's before the mind moves. Right, it's not, right, it's not time as we see time. I understand what you're saying. Yes, it's not that. Yeah, translations are tricky. Say again. Yes, yes. It's not a conventional. It's not a conventional before. Right. Yeah. It's in a way, it, it, it is directing our attention to the background. We get caught up uh, in what's happening on the foreground. It's directing our attention to back. Or, or as Dogen said, turn, turn things around, right? So you turn it around and look at that which is looking. Look at that which is thinking. The observer? Beyond that too. Is this a Maybe. Is it? It should be because anything else it's it's, it's logical, so it's not using the logic to judge the But it's including that too, so it's not um, it, it's not rejecting or eliminating that. It's not separated from that. You uh, you gonna say something? Yeah. Um. <coughs> I think experience is sort of the divided line that um, everything that we get from experience is um, what's being put on one side and, and before are sort of almost the conditions for experience to take place or to occur. And so in philosophy, it's a priori versus a posteriori, what comes before a priori versus what comes after. And what comes after is everything we've learned from experience, which is generally what we think is the only thing that anybody ever knows anything about. Um, and this is to say what the conditions are for that experience to even happen. So it's prior to all experience. So that by which that by which the mind thinks, not what the mind thinks, but that by which the mind thinks, that by which the eye sees. Right? Because if it wasn't for that by which the eye can see, the eye would not be able to see. Right? So therefore, that by which the eye can see is not separated from the eye seeing. Right? So is it consciousness itself? Just consciousness? You can call it that. We actually, I want to, I'm going to get later on to the three bodies of the Buddhas, and that may shed light on, on this, actually. <coughs> Uh, because the three bodies of the Buddha connect very well to that, the Trikaya. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. All right, so thus I've heard. Thus I've heard. Do you know where this comes from? Isn't that something that they just always say uh, in a lot of the... It, it is, but why? It is, absolutely, but why? Because, okay... Thus I've heard is actually what the Buddha told Ananda to remember and to basically transmit, right? So to have that at the beginning of every sutra. 
Because this is Ananda saying, thus I have heard. That's why it's important to, to, to know who Ananda was. Go ahead. No, not, not yet. Not at that point. Right, and he actually did hear it. He did hear it. Can you close those two? Thank you. Yeah, both, yeah. This is the quiet side over there. So we can open those windows. So, Evan Maya Shrutan, thus I've heard. That's what that means. And uh, Bill Porter says, commentators have written volumes on the profundity of Evan, thus. Does it mean like so? Or does it mean just so? And what is the difference? Is this sutra the finger that points at the moon, or is it the moon itself? Is it pointing at the moon, or is it the moon itself? She's good. No, I'm good. What's the difference between the, the finger pointing at the moon and the moon itself? Or when, wh- let me ask it this way. When does the finger pointing at the moon becomes a problem? When does it become a problem for us? Okay, so it becomes an issue when it becomes, when, when, it, it is, when the attention goes to the idea or the explanation and not to the actualization of it. Mm-hmm. When the idea is not actualized, we are stuck on a finger pointing at the moon. So the finger pointing at the moon is not necessarily a, an issue by itself, as long as we understand that this is referring to actualization. It is about the fundamental point, but it has to be actualized. Otherwise, it's a problem. So there is such a thing as a finger pointing at the moon. And the sutras are pointing. How do we understand that is the question. And how do we live it? Right? So, yes, you can read a lot of commentaries and analysis of that. How we read them. Touch one says, The way of the ancients was said to be just so, for by the time they talked about it, they had already changed. But when the way changes, where does it go? Spit it out. It doesn't run off just anywhere. Where does it actually go? Speak. Words won't burn your mouth. Just on a clear, still night, the moon shines alone. So, water doesn't exist apart from waves. The waves are water. Does that work? Spit it out. Spit out what? What do we spit out? Contemplating? Right? Getting caught up by contemplating? Spit it out. Because the second we look at something and try to figure it out, it's no longer what we're trying to figure out. 
because it's changing. That's what he's saying. That's why Zen is, is, has this to the point. Kiyosaku, right? To the point. A split second later, it's gone. It's not gone. It's just that we are gone. So, okay. This happened in Anatta Pindata Garden in the Jetta Forest. This is actually a very important uh, point about this sutra. The Anatta Pindata Garden in the Jetta Forest, during the Buddha's time, Buddha's day, there was a wealthy merchant in Shravasti named Sudatta. Since he often helped the unfortunate, he was called Anatta Pindata, the benefactor. One day, while visiting his son's prospective in-laws in the Rajarita, Sudatta had a good fortune of hearing the Buddha speak and was so affected by what he heard that he invited the Bhagavan, the Buddha, to Shravasti. But when Sudatta returned to find a suitable residence for the Buddhas and disciple, the only place that seemed to him sufficiently spacious and serene was the forested preserve of Crown Prince Jetta, the Jetta Grove or the Jetta Forest, as it's called, two kilometers southwest uh, of the city. When Sudatta inquired about buying it, the prince joked, I'll sell you whatever portion you can cover with gold. Taking the prince at his word, Sudatta went home, brought back enough gold to cover an area of 200 acres with gold. That became known as Anatta Pindata Garden. Overcome by Sudatta's sincerity, the prince donated the entire forest to the Buddha's congregation. And together, the two men built a vihara, a monastery, where the Buddha could live and preach whenever he visited. It's a beautiful story. He was so moved by the sincerity. It's like, no problem. I'll go get my gold. I'll cover it. He actually was joking about that. Though it remains in the background, the Buddha's retreat represents the outcome of charity, Dana Palamita, and forbearance, Ksanti Palamita, the two perfections which together with the perfection of wisdom, Prajna Palamita, are extolled in this sutra as leading to Buddhahood. The word anatta means without reliance, and pindata means to give offering. Normally, this compound is interpreted as above to mean benefactor or to give offering to those without means. But it can also mean to give offering without attachments, which is practice, the practice praised throughout this sutra. Thus, the place where this sutra was spoken is more than just an example of his teaching. It is the teaching. It's beautiful, right? The, the place is what the teachings are teaching. Do you want to say something? I should give you a chance because you, you're muted there. No, I'm just listening. Okay. Any uh, note, quick notes about that before we move on, about this story or the meaning of this story? I'm assuming that in the practice of giving alms then that's tied to this, is, is giving without attachment. Not even just to the object being given, but not expecting anything in return for the giving. 
It's the mother load giving. The first Dana Paramita is, yeah, absolutely. Is that the same as letting go of attachment? Can you give without letting go? Can you truly give without letting go? Or let me ask you this, how is giving with holding on? What kind of giving is it when we hold on? And what kind of giving is it when we actually let go? What is selfish? One creates a self, the other one doesn't. Yeah? Good. <coughs> so, a bodhisattva, there were many bodhisattvas present. Uh, actually, uh, in Thich Nhat Hanh's translation, there were no bodhisattvas present. And this one, there, is, there were bodhisattvas present. What is a bodhisattva? Sattva is a being. Body is awakened, right? So, an awakened being or a being that is practicing awakening. Or a being that is devoted to the practice of awakening, if you will, right? Mahasattva. What is Mahasattva? Go ahead. Fearless. Go ahead, you go. go. A being was started on the path of the Bodhisattva. Fearless actually was, uh, this is Bill Porter's translation. Uh, I think it's only him translates it this way. Uh, Mahasattva, what? I like it. Yeah, Maha is great. Right? So. Maha means great. Uh, so it's a great being, right? And, uh, but also, this was a term before Buddhism. It was a term, that's how they called lions. So that's what he came up with. I think this he came up with uh, fearless. So that's what we want to embody. Bodhisattva and Mahasattva. If you look at it this way, but you could, do you have to look at it from this way, or can you look at it from this way? Okay, you get back to me on that. Okay. So, uh, bodhisattva, depending on the interpretation one gives to sattva, this term means spiritual warrior or spiritual being, which is uh, more common, if less interesting, interpretation, it says. The term originally refers to ascetics of various religious traditions, but was eventually taken over by Buddhists, and it was extended not only to monks, but to nuns as well, as to male and female householders, and who devoted themselves to achieving enlightenment for others as well as for themselves. Thus, the term, the term was used to represent the Mahayana ideal with its emphasis on compassion and wisdom as opposed to the Hinayana ideal of the Arhan with its emphasis on morality and meditation. That's from Bill Porter. Okay. So he turned the attention 
inwardly, right? So he sat down, turned the attention inwardly. Now we want to look. At, I just want to look at one thing before we move to that. Uh, the purpose of begging. This is from Chiang Wei Nong, who says the purpose of begging is to counter egotism, egotism and arrogance, to overcome attachment to flavor and taste, to concentrate the mind on cultivating the way, and to cause others to be embarrassed. A monk leaves home to liberate others, but to liberate others, he must first put an end to their own delusion, to their delusion. And to put an end to their delusion, he must practice austerities, so that those who see him think to themselves, here is somebody who takes on hardship to liberate others. How can I continue indulging in food and comfort? And as thoughts of the way increase, worldly thoughts decrease. Thus does begging greatly benefit others. Yeah? Does that, make, does that make sense? Does it work as an explanation? Interesting. To embarrass others. <laughs> you know, it's interesting though in the sense that maybe now more than in those times that is important considering how many people we walk past in the city and then they're pretty much indistinguishable from the buildings in the background and in a situation like this it forces you to see them as a being that's suffering sometimes it's a bit more aggressive than than other times and sometimes it's something we definitely don't want to see because it makes us uncomfortable uh, to feel like either we can't do anything or have got it's unsightly you know even in our Right. So, in a way, it also serves as upaya, right? It's a practice, but it's a upaya, right? So, but you teach by example. We we turn the attention to that, to to be an example, right, to others in different ways. And the other thing with that is that what they did, um, what they do still to these days, is that there is a symbiotic relationship. And when I was in Thailand, they, they explained it that way, that they give spiritual f- food to people, right? So, and then they get back physical food. So, and it works because they help others. And um, what they say is usually uh, sm- monasteries, they, they are next to small villages and they go and beg in those villages, right? And so they have connection with the people. The people know them, know the monks. So if one of the monks, for example, would be slacking off, um, then they will go back to the monastery with an empty bowl. So they can reflect on their own practice. So it's not a punishment, but in a way, it works together. Right? So we guide you and you feed us. Yeah, to show that we are liable for each other, dependent on each other, codependent, yeah. yeah. And that in, in a mon- the monastery in Burma where they trained, um, it, was, it was a poor village, but people considered it the greatest honor to um, provide the food for that 
kneel to the whole monastery and they would come and stand in the dining room and watch people eat mm. because it was such an honor to share in this. Mm. I don't know if that's relevant. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, I just think, I think embarrassment has a negative connotation, but I think it can take a couple of ways. Like to embarrass others would not be really to embarrass them, but to be, to bring them to mind, bring their mind to what they're doing. Probably more to make them reflect yeah. than embarrassed. I think the word embarrassed is a little, right, has a negative connotation, yeah. but you know, you do what you do and then people look at it and maybe reflect on their own lives. That's probably a better way of uh, translating. Yeah, right. And that's what he's saying. Right. And that leads to turning towards the uh, spiritual path. Unless they're egocentric. Yeah, but we don't see that as something negative. We see it as what we have to work with. We are all that. This is, this is, the, this is what we work with. Our own attachments. We attach to. We attach from. So it's not unless, it's a given. <laughs> okay. It's there anyway. And that's what we work with. So anyway, uh, we're moving on because uh, we have to move on. So turning the attention inwardly, right? So we do what we do throughout the day and then we get to whether home on a cushion or here on a cushion and we turn the attention inwardly. And Chiang Wei Nong says, unfortunate, unfortunate suffering beings the rich as well as the poor spend their lives working for food and clothes. No matter what kind of job they do, they all work for food. They get up in the morning and hurry, hurry to the, into the city to do work. Working for food is important. But when your work is done, you should return to your place, to your own place. The problem with most people is that for the sake of food and clothes, they run around like beggars and eventually forget who they are and no longer return to their own place. Now, return to their own place mean, really means go home, not actual place. They never get home. They always run away from home, is what he's saying. When your work is done, don't involve yourself in what doesn't concern you. That's always good, right? Don't involve yourself in what doesn't concern you. Thus, the Buddha sits down and focuses on the thought before him. Simple, Right? To the point. I, okay, so what, what concerns us? Because we can always say that there is something that's concerning us. And you can, we can always justify it. So to put that aside, don't involve yourself with what doesn't concern you. What does concern you? Most of the things that concern you Other people. People I care about are my concerns. So, yeah, so you sit down and you offer your zazen to them. Okay. So your zazen is offering, an offering for those you care about. How? We'll get to that. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's good. How is good. Okay, uh, Sufa says, the Buddha puts on his robe 
and takes up his bowl to uphold the precepts of morality. He washes his feet to, and takes up his seat to enter meditation. He does morality, thus, uh, thus does morality give birth to meditation, and meditation gives birth to wisdom. Also, by entering the city with his robe and bowl, he goes from the noumenal into the phenomenal. By washing his feet and taking, taking his seat, he goes from the phenomenal into the noumenal. It is only by remaining unattached to the noumenal as well as the phenomenal that undifferentiated prajna can be realized. What do you think about that? I mean, do you see the connection? This is the question. Do you see the connection between those actions, those acts, to going beyond? Or to not getting caught up in those actions? So what he's saying is the actions themselves lead to going beyond. Unless we get caught up in those actions. So the actions themselves actually are not something to, uh, to, to leave behind or, or to uh, reject. It's just that to do them differently or to see them as leading to going beyond. Yeah. I thought um, one thing I read in the text, I'm not sure if it was this chapter or another chapter, but I, I thought it was relevant that um, to view things as a mirror, you know, when it's reflected before you view reflection of it, without being attached to it, and then when it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, that actually uh, is a commentary to a later chapter. Yes. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that, yes. I know. But I thought that, because that non-attachment to anything. It's actually got to do with the concept of leaving no trace. Is that what you mean? Yeah. No trace. Right, no trace. When you work on it this way, when you practice this way, the no trace is just no trace. Where did they go? And then, and then, oh, and then, and then you kind of like look back and it's like, oh my god, and all that. And you need to look because I mean, they disappear. And mm-hmm. and it's interesting because it, it's so different from the normal behavior where you're kind of accumulating whatever it is that you're doing to keep a tally of this and do this and do this and do this and do this. Um, yeah. So this is has has no tally. I mean, if, you, if somebody asks you, did you do that? Yes, I remember doing that. But, but it's, it, it doesn't, it does, it's not there if nobody's asking. So it's interesting. I don't know. When I first read the chapter, like, I didn't understand what was in the first chapter. I didn't really understand what was happening because usually when you read, like, I, I don't read many like books like these. So usually when you read a book and it's talking about daily life, it's always connection to something, but this was just action. It's always like connecting to what they feel, or like the emotion that comes within every daily act. And this one was kind of like, it's not that it was completely disconnected, but it was, that part was irrelevant to what you needed to do. So that, I think that really brings the, I mean, connection to being in each part and like being going beyond because you're just there each time. Yeah, you want to change the way you do what you do. 
Right? It has to do with changing the way you interact on a momentary basis, daily basis. Or taking out something or someone out of those interactions, communication. Go ahead. Wouldn't it be respond rather than react? It has to do with removing the gap between that which does and that which is being done. So to finish this uh, chapter, I just want to quickly go over, uh, it's very important, this is the beginning of the six parameters actually, what they're talking about. Uh, Bill Porter says, again, in this chapter, we see in outline form how the cultivation of the perfections takes place. As charity gives birth to meditation, and meditation gives birth to wisdom. These three represent an earlier formulation of what later became the six perfections of charity, morality, forbearance, vigor, meditation, and wisdom. Thus, we not only see the essence of Buddhist practice, we also see the essence of wisdom whereby our everyday activities become the focus of our spiritual cultivation. Our everyday activities become the focus of our spiritual cultivation. So it's not doing something to get somewhere else. It's doing something differently as a way to cultivate spirituality. And then, um, and again, Bill Potter says, uh, Taken together, the Buddha's actions in this first chapter represent the six paramitas of perfection. Picking up his begging bowl, the Buddha practices the perfection of charity. Putting on his monk's robe, he practices the perfection of morality. Begging in the city, he practices the perfection of forbearance, patience. Eating his meal, returning to his abode. Putting on his robe and bowl, he wash, uh, washing his feet, he practices the perfection of vigor. Sitting down and focusing on what was before him, he practices the perfection of meditation. And remaining unattached to thoughts, to, uh, unattached throughout the practice of these five perfections, the Buddha practices the perfection of wisdom. Thus, the first chapter contains a brief but practical introduction to, te- to the teachings of all six perfections, the six paramitas. Do you see it? Mm-hmm. Do you see it? If not, look again. Chapter 2. On this occasion, the Venerable Subhuti was also present in the assembly. Rising from his seat, he uncovered one shoulder and touched his right knee to the ground. Pressing his palms together and bowing to the Buddha, he said, It is rare, Bhagavan, most rare indeed, Sugata, how the Tathagata, the Ahan, the fully enlightened one, blesses fearless Bodhisattvas with the best blessings, best of blessings. And it is rare, Bhagavan, how the Tathagata, the Arhan, the fully enlightened one, entrust fearless bodhisattvas with the greatest of trust. Even so, Bhagavan, if noble son or daughter should set forth on the bodhisattva path, how should they stand? How should they walk? How should they control their thoughts? The Buddha told the venerable Subhuti, Well said, Subhuti, well said. So it is, Subhuti. It is as you say. The Tathagata blesses fearless bodhisattvas with the best of blessings and entrusts fearless bodhisattvas with the greatest of trust. You should therefore truly listen and consider this well. I shall tell you how those who set forth on the bodhisattva path should stand, how should they walk, how should they control their thoughts. The, the Venerable Subhuti answered, May it be so, Bhagavan, and gave his full attention. 
Do you guys remember Subhuti from the Vimalakirti Sutra? It's one of the guys who did who didn't want to go see Vimalakirti. Exactly, yes. And he had good reasons for that. Right? Here's why I don't want to go see him. Right? Um, so that was, that was uh, Subhuti. And uh, he was actually uh, known uh, for practicing uh, loving kindness. He's a very good guy, apparently. Also, he was known for uh, being very uh, good at practicing or understanding emptiness. So it is said that on the day he was born, all his family's fortune disappeared. Thus, he was born of emptiness. Then, seven days later, it appeared, reappeared. And commentators said that the disappearing, disappearance of his family wealth demonstrated the truth of emptiness, while it's the reappearance demonstrated the true, that, that true emptiness is empty of emptiness. What does it mean, true emptiness is empty of emptiness? True emptiness is empty of emptiness. True emptiness does not mean void. And it doesn't mean that something has to be negated or rejected or disposed of. Right? It doesn't mean that we have to... Letting go is not what we think it is. Actually. Letting go has to do with not creating the person to attach. So, if there is no person to attach, then there is no letting go either. Then you're free, and that... That is actually one of the teachings of Vimalakirti Sutra, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't bothered by his fortune because he wasn't trapped by his fortune. Right. Lemon Pang actually did put all his fortune on a boat and sunk it. I'm not comparing. <laughs> Different kind of teaching. Okay. So, Subhuti is asking a question here. And Huineng says, when disciples ask a question, they demonstrate their sincerity in five ways. First, they rise from their seat. Second, they put their clothes in order. So that's their one shoulder. Third, their right shoulder, sorry, that's the third. The right shoulder is bared. Then touch their right knee to the ground. Fourth, they put their palms together in gasho and look up without averting their eyes. Fifth, they focus their mind in reverence. Thus prepared, they ask the question. So sincerity of practice, right? To really want to practice, to really want to ask a question, to want to inquire, to want to go deep. So how we ask a question, this is a very important point. So Bill Porter says, as the Buddha put on his robe and ate his meal and so forth, right, Subhuti was able to see his appearance as no appearance. Thus he called him Tathagata. And why did the Buddha appear as a human being? Because he cherished others and did not abandon them. 
this is great compassion. By letting go, by letting his Dharma body appear as human being, he also demonstrated lack of attachment to form, which is the essence of the Diamond Sutra. So again, letting go is not, does not mean not appearing. Also, transforming doesn't mean not appearing in this form for the sake of others. Well, in other words, I think what we need for us, what's important to, to recognize is that spirituality is not what we think it is. Because I think it's common, it's a common way of thinking that spirituality is something other than moment by moment everyday activities. And moment by moment everyday activities means the whole thing with the challenges, with the difficulties, with the suffering. The whole thing, if seen differently, can be understood as the practice of spirituality. Yeah? So the question Subhuti is asking here is really how do we actualize the fundamental point, right? And he's surprised to see, that's why he's saying this is rare, most, most rare, to see that you, the Buddha, will just do what everybody else does, right? Because in his mind, there is still a separation between what he thinks Buddhahood is and what he thinks the common person is. Right? And then he's asking, okay, well, if somebody is setting foot on that path to become a Buddha, what, will, what should she or he do? Or how should she or he proceed? And then Bill Porter says, Subhuti inquires further into the basis of Buddhahood. Although Subhuti understands the doctrine of emptiness, expressed in the Buddha's everyday actions, he senses there is something more to Buddhahood than emptiness. And he asks for instruction in this matter on his own behalf as well as on behalf of others, whether they are monastics or lay. And Subhuti represents the Hinayana thought to encounter the Buddha's teaching and to possess the capacity to understand it is made possible by one's karma. If, however, someone should hear his, this teaching and not practice it, such a person would waste an opportunity that might not come again for many lifetimes. Do you understand what this, is, what this means? On a personal level, what does that mean? It means something brought us here. Something brought you to the Dharma. And most people are not attracted at all to this. That's to put it mildly. They probably think we are nuts to even do that, right? Okay. Yes. So the fact that something brought us to the Dharma means that there is something already in us that is arising. A bodhicitta. It's already there. It's already arising, right? And it's an opportunity that if we don't nurture that in us, It'll die down and may not come back for many lifetimes. Because if we don't nurture it, we nurture something else. 
when we nurture something else, this, is the, this becomes the direction of the karma. Whereas if we nurture Buddhahood, and not as, a, as, a, as an outcome, but if we nurture Buddhahood as an innate capacity, then that becomes the trajectory of the karma. That's why Vidya Paramita is so important. Right? To keep finding the way to become encouraged when we get discouraged. Because we do often get discouraged. So, just a small, very important point to, to bring up. Bill Porter says, the Buddha never stops teaching. When asked, he teaches through words. Otherwise, he relies on his examples. Confucius once says, do you disciples think I conceal something? I conceal nothing. I have no practice. I do not share with you. Everything is out in the open. My life is what I'm teaching, in a way. That's what he's saying. You want to understand? Pay attention. Look. Look at what I'm doing and look at what you think I'm supposed to be doing based on your concept of Buddhahood. Right? And the Buddha said, well said, Subhuti, well said. Right? So he's approving of that. What he's really approving of is, is his sincerity. Yes, you're here to really open up to the teachings. More so than the question, but the fact that, yes, you are sincere about that. And Jiang Wei Nong says, the first well said is in praise of Subhuti's ability to ask what no one else was able to ask. There were any people there. Right? The second well said is in praise of his ability to ask for the sake of others rather than himself. And then said, you should therefore truly listen, Subhuti, and consider this well. And, you know, to pay attention, and Wang Po actually says, most people allow their mind to be obstructed by the world and then try to escape from the world. They don't realize that their mind obstructs the world. Isn't it? I don't know if you are as excited about it as I am, but isn't it amazing though, how clear that is? We create what we try to get over, basically. We create the barrier and then try to knock it down. If they could only let their minds be empty, the world could be empty. Don't misuse the mind. If you want to be free of the world, you should forget the mind. Once you forget the mind, the world becomes empty. And when the world becomes empty, the mind disappears. If you don't forget the mind and only get rid of the world, you only succeed on become, in becoming more confused. Thus it is said, all things are only mind. But the mind cannot be found. You know that one, well, right? All things are mind, but the mind cannot be found. When you cannot find a thing, you have reached the final goal. This is why Bodhidharma 
said to Huika, okay, go find me or bring me your mind. Bring me your mind. I'll put it to rest for you. You remember, right? My mind is not at ease. Okay, go get it. Show it to me. Where is it? Where is that which is entangling and troubling you? Where is it? You seem to be really bothered by that. Should be easy to produce it. Where is it? It's one of the more fundamental questions for a practitioner. So the mind cannot be found. So when you cannot find the thing, you have arrived to your destination. Why bother running around looking for liberation? This is how you should control the mind. That's the answer, right? Once you see your own nature, you won't have any deluded thoughts. Once you have no deluded thoughts, you have controlled your mind. It's not what we think control means. It's what Suzuki actually wrote in, in Zen My Beginner's Mind about the thoughts. Give them an ample amount of space. Give them freedom and you control them. You try to restrict them, they become an issue. Let your mind run 100 miles an hour if it so desires. Let it. Let it produce thought after thought after thought after thought. The worry actually does not come from a thought. Or the worry does not come from what happens. The worry comes from the way we interpret what happens. So if we don't interpret what happens, is there worry? If we don't interpret what happens, we have much more energy to deal with what happens. Right? Because otherwise the energy goes to, some of the energy goes to worrying about something and then we end up not being able to do what we need to do and take care of situation. There are some great stories about that. But. Chapter 3. The Buddha said to him, Subhuti, those who, ha, who, who would now set forth on the Bodhisattva path should give birth to this thought. However many beings there are in whatever realms of being might exist, whether they are born from an egg, born from a womb, born from a water, or born from the air, whether they have form or no form, whether they have perception or no perception, or neither perception or no no perception, in whatever conceivable realm of being one might conceive of being. In the realm of complete nirvana, I shall liberate them all. And though I thus liberate countless beings, not a single being is liberated. And why not, Subhuti? A bodhisattva who creates the perception of being cannot be called a bodhisattva. And why not, Subhuti? No one can be called a bodhisattva who creates the perception of a self, the perception of a being, a perception of a life, a perception of a soul. What do you see in that? Or how do we, how does our practice, how you see your practice connects, connect to this? Okay, non-duality, say more. 
to not create a perception. But the moment you create a perception, you, you are, you separate yourself from what? From the moment you create, you go to the creation. To what to, your attention goes to what you created. And you become attached to what you created. Go ahead. Well, the path is the path of shedding light on things as they are, right? What we call the path of Buddhism, right, is a path of shedding light on things as they are. If I create a perception, I'm shedding light on what is not. So, therefore... I see a perception, an important aspect of perception Perception is attached to the belief. I mean, the, the belief that it's real. It's not mm-hmm. just some thought. It's the belief that that what I'm perceiving is actually real. And that, and that is that's kind of the, the nuance of this because you know, thoughts thoughts are immaterial mm-hmm. in all the discussions we're having. The mm-hmm. perception is materializing that thought into something that you believe is real. And that is what the difference is. You know, like. Uh, get into a perception then you are creating something and you're believing that is real and so you're creating yourself or creating I mean and, it, and I think what's what's ama- amazingly clear of this particular piece is that it's pointing directly to it like don't, do not create yourself um, and basically that's what I'm saying and and it's absolutely clear uh just saying that this is the only thing bodhisattvas, bodhisattvas do not create self do not believe Himself, even if you know you are kind of you perceive you you thinking about it, it's kind of showing up to you that your story is generating. They don't believe, and that's what this what this about. And, and it's really, I mean, it, it's I don't know. We, we, you know, it's one of the most clear pieces of Buddhist test I saw. It's like this is it. This is the clear thing for you to do. Very hard to do, but... Right, but it's also showing what we do. Yes. It is showing us what we do. Right? So then, well, it says, don't do that. How do I not do that? Does it mean I can stop doing that? I think, it, well, that's why I was kind of... I was talking about the perception being that belief. It's like... I don't think I can stop the thoughts of Bitsuga being separated, you know, from Roshi, you know, but, you know, I can start not to believe it, can I can start kind of to, not to get attached to that thought, not to get entangled into believing that that is a reality, that, that I mean, the moment that I acknowledge that that is delusion, then it gets weakened. And it doesn't have the hold of what I'm doing. So, those creations happen automatically, right? Same with judgments. It happens automatically, right? It's not that we decide all of a sudden I'm going to be, I'm going to think judgmental thoughts or I'm going to create a perception of me, right? Actually, it's very deep because our lives are based on what I create as a perception of me. Mm -hmm. So, the question is, can I see that 
and then not hold on to what is being created. The fact that it's being created is a given. Can I not hold on to that creation? Can I not create something from the creation? Go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say that's, to me, that's the work. I mean, that's, that's the, that's where, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and so it was very, it was very personal. You know, when you ask the question, uh, you know, how does this relate to your practice? Um, that is, that is my practice. That is, you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. So that's all. I, but I, I, you know, I, I totally agree with what Mitsuga was saying, but I just, when you ask that question about the personal, you know, how does this relate to your practice, that is the practice. That is the moment, a moment by moment challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's also the point where there is off kind of distinction kind of starts to set in a little bit as opposed to, you know, it seems like the line of questioning here is what ought a bodhisattva be doing? How ought we? do this, 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 mm-hmm. and it's about trying to create, I guess, a conceptual breathing room, where it's not limited, well, I ought to do this, and if I don't feel like this, then there's discord, there's something that it shouldn't be, that it is. You, you know, the, 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 the great trust, right, one of the three pillars, right, the great trust is, is very important there. Because without having that, without feeding the great trust or right, strengthening that in us, it becomes very difficult. Because, we, because those perceptions do have a lot of power and karma. There's a lot of momentum there. So, of course, it's how I'm going to think. Of course, those are the thoughts that are going to appear in my mind. Of course. But do I have to believe them? Can I trust that I'm not that? Can I trust that that's not me? Because there is no such thing. Although there is a very strong (laughs) momentum there that says, no, no, that's exactly who you are. (laughs) Don't fool yourself to think that there is something else. Right? And then those thoughts, when they're not nurtured, they actually start to subside. They come and go and come and go. But when they're not nurtured, when they're not fed, they lose some of their power. Right? What happens? So, um, I just want to move on to what Bill Porter is saying. Uh, There are some differences of opinions among commentators to the relationship of these four modes of birth to the categories of form and perception that follows. The correct practice of Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva says, instead of telling us how to conduct our lives and our practice and how to control our thoughts, the Buddha tells us to give birth to give birth to a thought. Right? So in a way, he's not saying stop thinking. He's saying think that. Or think no thinking. Remember, Dogen? Think not thinking. Dogen is not saying stop thinking. And it's very important because if we try to stop thinking, thinking becomes actually more powerful. If we try to run away from something, it picks up momentum. So instead of saying, don't do that, yeah, do, but do this. 
which a way, in a way is going against what, uh, what's the way Subhuti was seeing it at that time because of his own practice, his own training. So the, Buddha approach, the Buddha's approach is homeopathic. He uses thought to put an end to all thoughts. But to effect uh, such a cure, not just any thought will do. Only a thought directed toward the liberation of all beings will do. Thus, bodhisattvas turn their thoughts into offerings. Rather than advising us to suppress our thoughts, the Buddha preempts them. He advises bodhisattvas not to wait for thoughts to, to arise, but to give birth to the thought that puts an end to all thoughts, to all thoughts to flight. Right? So it, it actually creates all thoughts. It gives space to thoughts. How about that? It just gives them space because you get away from attaching to those thoughts. Does that make sense? The language, he says, the language used here suggests that this thought has been gestating within us for many lifetimes, and it is now the time to bring it forth, to give it life. It is now the time, because we're here as practitioners. Because we do find, we do find the Dharma appealing, basically. Thus, this is the most important event in the Bodhisattva's career and it's what makes a Bodhisattva a Bodhisattva. Okay, we're going to move on. Yes? You want to say something? We, we don't have much time. Okay. And then he says, and, thus, and though I thus liberate countless beings, not a single being is liberated. St. Charles says, Nothing arises on its own. Everything is a result of karma. It, all, all it is is karma. It possesses no self-nature. Okay, all it is is karma means what? Cause, effect, All it is karma means there is no person involved into whatever is happening. It's just cause and effect. Individuals create karma, karma does not create individuals. Remember that? Yeah. There is karma to deal with. But, we, but the karma does not create you. Which means it does, even if, if we do have some inclination of what, what, what they're saying here, it doesn't mean that it's all going to just disappear. Or, or the challenges and difficulties will disappear. So, and, and then he says, why, why don't we liberate anyone? If the concept of self existed, we could say that somebody is liberated, but since neither a self nor an other exists, who is liberated? And liberated from what? Who says we're not liberated? Right? If we create the idea of a self and try to remove it, then there is a sense of being trapped and having to be liberated. If we create self and other, there is that to get 
through, to break through. But if we don't give that, if we don't create that perception of self and other, who liberates who? Okay. Yeah. Okay, we have to move on and uh, maybe do another chapter. What do you think? Yes. Go ahead. You can go. <laughs> chapter four. Moreover, Subhuti, when bodhisattvas give a gift, they should not be attached to a thing. When they give a gift, they should not be attached to anything at all. They should not be attached to a sight when they give a gift, nor should, be, nor should they be attached to a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a dharma when they give a gift. Thus, Subhuti, fearless bodhisattvas should give a gift without being attached to the perception of an object. And why, Subhuti? The body of merit of those bodhisattvas who give a gift without being attached is not easy to measure. What do you think, Subhuti? Is the space to the east easy to measure? Subhuti replied, no, it is not, Bhagavan. The Buddha said, likewise, is the space to the south, to the west, to the north, in between, above, below, in any direction, ten directions, easy to measure? Subhuti replied, no, it is not, Bhagavan. The Buddha said, so it is, Subhuti. The body of merit of those bodhisattvas who give a gift without being attached is not easy to measure. Thus, Subhuti, those who set forth on the bodhisattva path should give a gift without being attached to the perception of an object. Right? The first paramita. So it says here that the previous chapter focused on the giver and the recipient, and this chapter is, focus, is focusing on the gift. Now in the Zen tradition, the giver, receiver, and the gift are referred to the triple emptiness was referred as the triple emptiness. Do you want to say something about that quickly, or should I move on? Move on to opening it up a little bit. Because it's very important. And if we don't get to that today, we're going to have to begin there and next time and take it from there. Because it's very important that we open this up. What is a giving? What kind of giving is he talking about here? Is this all our, all our actions? What is giving? Every time we do something, we give something. Why? Why, why? why is that? You're saying something very important, but why? Because we are an ecosystem. Because nothing exists unto itself. Since nothing exists unto itself, every thought, every word, every action is a gift, not necessarily a good one, <laughs> but is affecting everything and everybody. Everything and everybody. I mean, we see it now with you know, global warming. There are some amazing, if you haven't watched, there are some amazing shows about nature, about how nature is, uh, about in the, basically animals that are in the front line of effects of global warming and how 
they run out of food. And what happens to them? There's, there's nothing that we do that does not affect everything else. Yes, so every action, every word, every thought already creates something that is being given by its nature of codependence. It is given to the world. We can't escape that. This is why it's so important that we don't get so caught up in our own karmic consciousness. Because when we get caught up in our own karmic consciousness, we give that to the world. Right? Right? Volume. Yeah, right. But we have to be aware of that, right? It's so important to, to recognize the responsibility that we have mm-hmm. as human beings, right? The responsibility mm-hmm. and the baggage. Right. We have baggage. We call it karma, but we have, we have to deal with it. How do we work uh-huh. with that? How do we work with that? Yeah. So let me just uh, finish with couple more things I want to uh, read from Bill Porter. He writes that the Buddha also anticipates our doubts about what merit can possibly result from such practice. For it is only by means of merit that spiritual progress is possible, right? So we actually accrue merit by acting in this way, right? That's what he's saying. This is the law of karma, which, is also, which also applies to bodhisattvas. Every fruit grows from a seed. If we practice without being attached to our practice, what sort of merit can we expect? The fruit from a seed without limits turns out to be a fruit without limit, right? This is why in the, all in the ten directions, you cannot measure. If you go to the east, can you measure that? How do you measure the wide, empty sky? You can't measure it. And he is equating the, the, the way of a bodhisattva or the acts of a bodhisattva to that. Right to, to that vastness. The fruit 
the fruit that, sorry, the fruit from a seed without limits turned out to be a fruit without limits, which prompts the question answered in the next chapter. What kind of fruit, fruit could possibly have no limits? Having stepped into the Bodhisattva path without such baggage as a self, a being, a life, or a soul, practitioners are now advised how to walk the path, which they do by practicing the perfection of charity. Since the compassionate aspiration to save other beings is essentially an act of charity, and charity is the only member of the six perfections that by itself results in merit, for it is the only member directed exclusively at liberating others. Thus, it is the first step on the Bodhisattva path. It is also the last step, for by liberating others, Bodhisattva liberate themselves. But liberation is only possible if there is no attachment of any kind, including attachment to the gift of liberation. And practice itself has to be let go of. All of it. Why? Because the, the nature to grasp is not about what is being grasped. Right? The nature of the hand to close is not about what is in the, in the hand. It's about the nature of grasping. This is what we have to see through. In the practice of charity, Buddhists, dist Buddhists distinguish three kinds of gifts. Material, emotional, and spiritual. Material gifts include such things as food, clothes, and medicine. Emotional gifts include comfort and protection. And spiritual gifts include guidance and instruction. In terms of their benefits, material gifts put an end to greed, Emotional gifts put an end to anger, and spiritual gifts put an end to delusion. It was the combination of all three in the Buddha's daily life that prompted Subhuti's question and resulted in these further instructions on the nature of the practice that results in Buddhahood. Is that too much? <laughs> it's actually not that complicated. There's a lot of words, but they're saying... Something very simple. Go ahead. Oh, my mind is overloaded. Yeah. That's okay. Give it a break. It's interesting how this, I guess, we've talked about it in brief, uh, you and I, about the, the role that food plays within Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me to see how, how food, even though it's listed under material gifts, is, could, in theory, straddle all three of the gifts in the sense of, yeah, it was passively watching Great British Bake Off the other day on Netflix and one person mentioned how they don't like to bake when they're upset or angry because they're afraid of what they might put into the food um, like emotionally speaking mm -hmm. kind of transmitting it, which is you know a bit woo woo but at the same time it's why as you point out how um, you know the, the most studied monk or the highest tier monk is the cook Monastery. Yeah, yeah. Because the of tenzo. all of those things getting essentially in part even, even because we feed each other, there. because we feed others, we feed each other, right, with, with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and also to, to a certain extent, we can't help it. Mm -hmm. Right? But we have to start somewhere. Yeah. So, just uh, so we're going to finish with one short uh, quote by Jiang Wei Nong uh, from, this, uh, from the comedy in this chapter. He says, the Buddha says we should not be attached to the six senses. He does not tell us to eliminate the six senses. 
It's a very important point to make. The Buddha says we should not be attached to the six senses. He does not tell us to eliminate the six senses. Cultivation takes place in the world. It does not deny the world. We have to depend on the world in order to practice. Charity and marriage show us where to begin our practice. It means all of it is included. All of it. There's nothing wrong with our thoughts the way they are or our senses the way they are. But we do have to examine how we work with that and also, yeah, what do we create as a, res- as a result of our, interaction, our daily interactions with the world? Do I perpetuate what was created up to this point? Because this is the moment to examine that question. Am I perpetuating? How, by dwelling on these thoughts, by speaking in this way, by acting this way, that's how we perpetuate. So if I stop that, take a look, and then think, speak, act, there is a possibility that those thoughts, words, actions will be different. Otherwise, there is no freedom. There's no other freedom. So we will finish with that, and uh, we'll end. We'll begin from there next time. Uh, we are one chapter below where I wanted to go, but that's okay. I wanted to do five chapters today, but there's a lot to cover. So, to be continued. <laughs>